0: Welcome to the episode 5 of the Black Dahlia and Blue Dahlia podcast. This is your host, Scott Tracy. The search for red is over. Robert Manley is under arrest and cooperating with the Los Angeles police. Manley is called the last person to see Elizabeth Short alive in the press, and it's not true. Beth is seen exiting the hotel three hours later. The last person to see her alive was her killer. The press and police used that tag, last person to see her alive, to shoehorn Red into the role of murderer. The photos taken for the newspapers do him the disservice of making him look like a convict. I recommend you look at the film noir comparison photos on my website. One can find books and web articles that still offer Red Manley as a suspect based on the initial police enthusiasm for his culpability. You may ignore those articles. Red Manley is a victim in this investigation. He's not a suspect. He's not a criminal. No one with a solid foundation of the facts of the Black Dahlia case considers Red Manley a valid suspect. The police expected him to come forward earlier, but of course, Manley has hesitated because he hopes not to lose his marriage because of an affair. Manley admitted to a flirtation with Elizabeth Short in San Diego. I had a date with her and kissed her a few times, but that's all. Police questioned Manley for 12 hours without an attorney and without charging him with a crime. Manley is drowsy and the polygraph test is declared inconclusive. Manley Studebaker is checked for blood. There's nothing on his clothing. There's nothing in the car. The press quotes Robert Manley's mother, Mrs. Morris Manley. It's ridiculous. He's a wonderful son. He's never been in any trouble in his life. They're just questioning everyone with red hair. That's all it is. Naturally, they have to find out who did it. Everyone with red hair gets the nickname, Red. Manley's wife, Harriet, and another couple maintain that he's playing cards with them the night in question. His story is believable. He passes the second polygraph. Then, Robert Manley is interviewed by Agnes Underwood. The police are playing bad cop, good reporter, with the hope a woman might get a better result, and indeed... There's a helpful clue and a new fact that changes things. The clue is that Robert Manley remembers a phone call that Beth made from a San Diego restaurant to an unknown person. In time, it'll be learned that that was a phone call to Mark Hansen on January 8th at his home, requesting to stay there when she returned to Los Angeles. Not until Anne Toth comes back was Hansen's reply. The important fact... Manley tells Aggie it was him that mentions the Biltmore. Beth never says, take me to the Biltmore Hotel. Manley admitted to Aggie that he told Beth he was married during the evening and said she told him that she had been married to a Major Matt somebody who had been killed. When I walked her to the door, I told her I might be down that way again and asked her, would it be all right to wire her when I was arriving? She said, yes. So on January 7th, about 3 p.m., I sent her a wire that I was arriving the next day. She asked me if I would drive her to Los Angeles. I said, yes, but I can't leave until tomorrow. When we were driving north, we, we uh, made it to Laguna Beach, then we stopped and got gas. En route, she'd asked whether she could write to me. She was going to meet her sister from Berkeley, Mrs. Adrian West. I asked where she was going to meet her, and without waiting for her to answer, I said, the Biltmore? And she answered, yes. She wrote my name and business address in her notebook so she could write to me. When we got into Los Angeles, she wanted me to take her to the Greyhound bus station so that she could check her bags before we met her sister. I drove her to the Greyhound station and carried her bags in. I had to go out and move my car, but told her I would drive around and pick her up and take her to the Biltmore. I didn't want to leave her in that neighborhood. When we got to the Biltmore, she said she had to go to the restroom and asked me if I would check at the desk on whether her sister had arrived. She hadn't. That was the last time I ever saw Beth Short. I'll take a truth serum or anything they want to give me and I'll swear on a stack of Bibles and tell my minister too that was the last time I ever saw Betty Short. I didn't kill her. But brother, I'll never cheat on my wife again. A couple of points related to the interview. One, Mandy makes the comment about the bus station because the Greyhound location is adjacent to Skid Row. He's being a gentleman. Two, the Biltmore, an emotional touchpoint for the Black Dahlia legend, but the hotel holds no more significance to the destiny of Elizabeth Short than it does for Winnie Ruth Judd. It's simply a place that both women pass through. There's no more of a Black Dahlia ghost at the Biltmore than there's a Black Dahlia ghost at the Greyhound bus station. For the most part, Red Manley gets a raw deal from the press. His mistake is his own doing, and he pays for it for the rest of his life. Elizabeth Short is an attractive girl. Harriet Manley is a beautiful woman. After the Aggie Underwood exclusive article in the Evening Herald Express, Manley is released. Aggie later writes in her autobiography, Newspaper Woman, that she was removed from the Black Dahlia case. Partially true. She was promoted to city editor. One Black Dahlia writer suggests her removal is evidence of a police cover-up. Eatwell writes, who was trying to take the star reporter off the biggest newspaper story of the decade? Who wanted her off their back and why? Eatwell doesn't answer any of these three questions she poses in her book. Let me do that now. The answer to these questions Is no one. Nor does Eatwell make any specific claims stating that the Los Angeles Police Department told the Hearst newspaper to take Underwood off the Dahlia case. How would the Los Angeles Police Department order the newspaper to remove a reporter anyway? Aggie's taken off the case? Well, there's not a lot of truth to that. It's certainly how Aggie felt in the moment. So maybe we'll give that 10% true. The 90% false part is that it's a significant exaggeration to suggest this is of any importance whatsoever. Firstly, the case was not the story of the decade five days in. The Hearst newspaper just stated the investigation was going to focus on the violent San Diego date who'd scratched Beth's arms. There's no one for Aggie to interview in Los Angeles. There's little reason to assume that the murder of Beth Short will be the a bigger newspaper story than the Red Rose murder, where the B-girl is stabbed repeatedly until the knife breaks off on her back, or the Red Hibiscus murder, where the mother of three World War II veterans is hit with a five-inch bolt raped and dumped in a public park. No one on the 21st of January in 1947 could assume this case would be talked about in March or April of 1947, much less 70 years later. Especially with Manly release, there's no clear investigative path forward. However, if Aggie had any valuable information to follow up with, she was now city editor. She could assign reporters anywhere she wanted. If this is a conspiracy to silence Aggie Underwood, why would she be given more authority and more independence? She loses a byline, but gains a surprising amount of power in the newspaper industry. This is only the second time in American history that a woman has been in charge. Let's celebrate that. So there's no conspiracy to silence anyone in 1947. The conspiracy conversation that Aggie is thinking about when she writes the book has its beginnings in 1948-1949. Later in life, Aggie will make comments that suggest that she knows who killed Elizabeth Short. This comment is very likely based on Deriver's 1949 false entrapment and interrogation of suspect Leslie Dillon, not based on what Aggie Underwood knew on January 21st, 1947. No one has heard the name of Leslie Dillon or George Hodell in January of 1947, for example. Returning to the fate of Robert Manley, he admits to the police that he slept with Elizabeth Short, something he denied to Aggie. Of course, he doesn't want that in the newspaper. In time, police will locate two other men who slept with her. All spoke of a lack of passion on Elizabeth Short's part. News of the day, San Francisco Chronicle headline, Search and Torso Killing Switched to San Diego. With Red eliminated as a suspect, police turned to a lead supplied by him. Manley related that the second time he met the shark girl, she had bad scratches on both arms above the elbows, which, she said, had been inflicted by her boyfriend, a black-haired Italian who lived in San Diego and who, she said, who had been mean to her. Police returned to Norton Avenue to canvas the neighborhood with two questions. Do you know anyone in the neighborhood who's mentally unbalanced? And do you know any medical students? Well, the common answers are no and no. Medical students, the police theory is that a young man who is rejected sexually turns violent in a fit of bloodthirsty rage. And a frustrated medical student would have the knife skills to bisect the body. But these two questions bifurcate dramatically. Perhaps that should be the question of the day. Raise your hand if you know any mentally unbalanced medical students in your neighborhood. The violent destruction of life is perceived by the police to be done by an evil madman with a soul of a wild animal. Could that be the same person who commits years to the study of medicine in order to save lives? It doesn't make sense. Yes, doctors have murdered their wives or husbands and lovers and there have been four famous serial killers who were doctors. My point is the question, do you know anyone who is mentally unbalanced? Because that returns us to the werewolf conversation. If I'm thinking of a crazy medical student in the neighborhood, I have this mental image of a werewolf in a lab coat that reminds me of that great Warren Zevon song, Werewolves of London. His hair is perfect. There is a solid logic considering medical students. Remember the LA Ripper, Otto Stephen Wilson, and the torso killer, Arthur Eggers, both considered bisecting their victims but found the task too difficult and gave up. The Los Angeles Police Department, with the help of the FBI, discover one USC pre-med student who knew Beth. However, that lead the ex-Navy Medical Corps veteran Marvin Margolis does not develop into a serious suspect. Phoebe Short, Elizabeth's mother, is flown out to California. The Hearst Papers buy her a ticket to get an exclusive story. Phoebe says her daughter loved Hollywood movies. Betty was a sophomore when she left high school in Medford, Miss Short recalled. She had asthma. Every winter, she would go south to Florida and work as a waitress. Then she'd come back home in summer. When she was away, she always wrote me once a week. The last I heard, she was working in San Diego at a hospital. But the slain girl's latest ambition, according to her mother, was to crash into the movie business. Betty had told her she worked as an extra. Records at both Central Casting and the Screen Actors Guild gave no indication that Miss Short ever worked in motion pictures. The mother said that she knew nothing of the hordes of boyfriends that had come into Betty's life. In Medford, she said, Betty was known as a quiet, unassuming girl. The antithesis of the Betty whom Hollywood acquaintances described as a fast girl who had a different fellow every night and who liked to prowl the boulevard. As I recall, Elizabeth Short wrote Joseph Fickling from San Diego that she's leaving for Chicago with a man named Jack to model and to not write her again in Los Angeles. Moving away is not what one would expect from an actress committed to making it in Hollywood. And why Chicago? She moved to Florida for the weather Chicago will have brutal winter weather, just like Boston. She didn't tell her mother she was going to Chicago, she only wrote to Fickling about it, and it's important that she stays in touch with Fickling as he is sending her money, and that's a real lifeline to her. $100, a considerable sum in 1947, was sent to her when she was staying with the French family in San Diego. Beth still asked Elvira French for a dollar when she left San Diego with Robert Manley and his Studebaker. Manley, the first time Elizabeth met him, he set up a job interview for her, but she never showed up. There is another redhead in the news on this day. Quote A red-haired man entered the murder picture in yet another way today on reports of Betty Blake Dancer, who said... Such a person came into the Gayway Bar, 514 South Main Street, on the night of January 12th. Miss Blake said the red-haired man asked for Miss Short, who'd been there earlier in the evening. This is Sunday, January 12th. Beth has three days to live. Quote, Investigators today threw more than 700 police, sheriff deputies, and state officers into an intensive hunt for clues. Virtually abandoning their hunt for a male killer, homicide detectives theorized that Miss Short may have been butchered by a jealous woman. They began a systematic examination of her woman friends. The theory that Miss Short may have been slayed by a woman was advanced by Captain Donahoe. The girl had no clothing or makeup when she left San Diego six days before, Her mutilated body was found in a vacant lot. Interestingly, the best presentation of the Woman Did It story is one printed in a St. Louis newspaper. Just as there are differences in morning and evening newspapers, outside of California, no papers selling the story of the tragedy of the young actress. Out-of-state newspapers are offering a vision of Los Angeles as a place of sin and regret, one example quote, unskilled, untalented, neither prettier nor shapelier than hundreds of other young women seeking fame and fortune in the entertainment world, Beth drifted about Hollywood looking for a living. Cruel and dismissive compared to the glamour-seeking character arc presented by the Los Angeles Times or Herald Express. Interestingly, this article is written by a Los Angeles reporter, Jim Murray, it appears in the St. Louis Globe Democrat. And as a syndicated article for an out-of-town newspaper, it has a headline that's not written for a Los Angeles audience, quote, "'Violent death and crime beneath the false face of filmland gaiety.'" The news story takes a bite out of the sunny Los Angeles image in the first sentence, quote, "'In Los Angeles, murder is nothing.'" There were 116 murders in this city last year, the highest in the country. But every so often a murderer shows a brutishness that marks his crime as out of the ordinary. The girl's body was in two sections. Shocking things had been done to her youthful limbs. A tattooed rosebud had been carved out of her thigh. Her hair had been wantingly pulled after the slaying her mouth had been cut in a taut, razor-sharp gash before the slaying. End quote. This is remarkable. The newspaper article talks about the Rose tattoo being removed and the hair pulled from the body. It doesn't mention where the tattoo and the hair were placed afterwards, but I'm surprised to see this in any article because we know that the police have three questions that only the killer would know and the tattoo and hair are inserted into the vagina and anal canal, respectively. Those sort of facts are useful questions that police use to eliminate the confessing people. Um, Eatwell claims that her suspect, Leslie Dillon, was the likely killer because only he knew the Black Dahlia had a tattoo of a red rose on her upper thigh, which had been cut off because this fact had not been released to the public. Obviously, that's not true. This James Murray piece is published in February of 1947, on the 2nd, and Dylan is questioned by Deriver in December of 1948. The Murray article quotes the police psychiatrist often, Only a jealous woman could have so coldly and with such fervent rage torn that body after a victim was dead, a police psychiatrist believed. Dr. Paul Deriver's rationalization as to why only a woman could be the murderess gets more blatant, quote, and only a woman could drive in the dark of the early morning hours to that site off Norton Avenue and place the body carefully on the hillock for passerbys to see in the morning. A man would have aroused suspicion driving alone in that lonely spot at that hour. Only a woman could coldly betray, by no action, that her memory concealed so frenzied a slaying. Somewhere, some day, she'll look up into a mirror, and that hand that holds the cocktail glass will begin to tremble. The reflection she sees will be that of a detective." Well, this is an odd piece of interpretive fiction for a news article, with the cocktail and the handshaking in fear, the detective in the mirror. I'm not sure how Deriver knows the killer drinks, but that's the least of his foolishness. Deriver deals with criminals who confess and assumes that the killer always needs to get it off his chest. Well, why would you confess if you're not caught? Indeed, that's one of the basic tenets of a serial killer is that there is no remorse. The killer justifies the victim as the victim, so there's no r- reason to regret because the victim deserves to die. This killer is obviously displaying the body as a trophy. Dr. DeRiver's push to sell the idea of a female murder is laughable given his efforts to exclude a male killer. Only a woman could have driven a car on Norton Avenue in the dark. What nonsense! Deriver offers no science behind his interpretive claims. He's engaging in marketing a theory for the police department to the newspapers. There are no facts presented. Deriver exhibits a level of integrity equal to the doctors that recommend camel cigarettes in post-war advertisements in the Saturday Evening Post. The article finishes with, Quote, "the story of elizabeth short will join the half-forgotten shadows of other unsolved murders that hang over this city and give it an air of apprehension and unease a place of violent death and crime beneath the false face of filmland gaiety" End quote. the common out-of-town angle to news stories is to focus on the scandals of the city as they pretend to be pulling back the curtain for their readers in order to expose the darker side of Hollywood. Murray calls Elizabeth Short, quote, a trapped, haunted, desperate girl who had blackened her record, aroused distrust in the men she sought, and proved herself unwanted anywhere, end quote. This is uh, perhaps an unspoken thing that the police think as well given the remarks that we quoted earlier from Harry Hansen, where he suggests that Beth was, quote, a girl with an obviously low IQ, end quote. The local press never goes to that depth. They, as far as they're going to go with it, is, suggest that, well, Elizabeth Short is a girl who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The police shift from Red Manly to a female killer is expressed in the local news on this day. Quote, bartenders remembered seeing the 22-year-old Miss Short at the dugout on Main Street and the four-star on Hollywood Boulevard January 12th, just two days before the probable night of her slaying. C.G. Williams, bartender at the downtown spot, said Miss Short was with a blonde who flew into a rage when two men attempted to move in on them. More than once, Elizabeth is seen in the company of a woman that witnesses characterize as bossy, suggesting a protective and perhaps even possessive attitude toward Beth when men approached. This plays into the police lesbian angle January 12th, as you remember, is when Betty Blake, dancer at the Gay Way, sees her. The Gay Way story doesn't appear in the Los Angeles Times. The use of the word gay might mean a carefree time or a brightly colored party room to many people in this period, but the Gay Way is a two-story bar with an upstairs where there's dancing. This is a bar that servicemen were told not to enter during World War II. After the war, a freshly painted welcome servicemen sign appears out front. The Crown Jewel Room also has a reputation as a gay bar. The police are very aware of these locations. Unspoken but very much thought about, the idea that Elizabeth Short shows little warmth or affection to Manly and other men leads the police and reporters to consider that Beth prefers the sexual company of women. The police chief's suggestion of a female killer in the newspapers reminds their readers of previous dangerous female killers in Los Angeles crime history. Tiger Girl, Claire Phillips, who killed with a ball-peen hammer. Serial killer, Louise Pete, who shot her victims in the back. And the trunk murderess, Winnie Ruth Judd, who bisected and dismembered her best friends. When looking at pictures of Claire Phillips or Louise Pete or Winnie Ruth Judd, they don't look like monsters or werewolves. Citizens who commit hideous and violent crimes don't wear black hats. They look like the rest of us. It's often stated that serial killers blend in. It's deeper than that. Serial killers commit a murder and are not seen, yes, but that's because their personality type has always been so that they were not seen. In other words, serial killers don't have a cloak of invisibility to help them escape the police, but a hurt that angers and motivates them, not being seen, is one of the primary reasons why the killer commits the crime. He needs to be noticed. A serial killer commits violence because he has been ignored, abandoned, beaten, unloved, not picked for sports or games. I admire the work of Sasha Reed, the University of Calgary criminologist and developmental psychologist. Reed has 645 variables in her database that span from the killer's preconception to their death. Quote, what was going on with the parents prior to conception? Do they live in a house with lead-based paint? Was the father an alcoholic? Was mom doing drugs or drinking during the pregnancy? Then we look at the childhood, were they born with any abnormalities? Were there birthing complications? Maybe an uh, umbilical cord wrapped around their necks, end quote. Low IQ, that's definitely a risk factor, but not for why many people think. It's a risk factor for making friends. Kids with lower IQs tend to have fewer friends because they really don't know how to socially engage. So I do recommend read Sasha Reed One more thing, you can walk into the gallery bar in the Biltmore Hotel lobby in downtown Los Angeles and order a Black Dahlia cocktail. It's a drink made with citrus vodka, Chambord, and Kahlua. The idea of that is actually revolting to me. I stayed at the Biltmore a few years ago and avoided the bar for that very reason. There's no restaurant in Brentwood that serves a Ron Goldman punch. There's no bar in Hollywood serving a Peg and fizz. How can we celebrate murder with a libation? And it's a fascinating question. I believe the answer is that our culture does not perceive that the Black Dahlia is Elizabeth Short. The story of Elizabeth Short is a morality tale, a warning to all young Red Riding Hoods not to stray true-life fairy tale written in stolen blood, grimmer than Grimm's. The Black dolly represents a violent fate more in the manner of a tarot card, and the mystery of death is itself entwined with the mystery of the unsolved crime. The Black dolly is a trope that has more in common with a candy-skull painted face that one would see on the Day of the Dead celebrations than it has with the tabula rasa life of Elizabeth Short. Very few deaths are as remarkable to have a life of their own that is exponentially greater than the life lived. I bring your attention to a parallel legend in European culture, La Canue de la Seine, the plaster death mask of the unknown woman of the Seine. A face Albert Camus calls a drowned Mona Lisa was hung on the walls of Bohemians and sophisticates. La Canoe became a muse for artists, poets, and other writers, among them Pablo Picasso, Man Ray, and Vladimir Nabokov. The Black Dahlia is certainly a muse for James Elroy and David Lynch, perhaps for you, as well as me. Thank you for listening. In the next podcast, the police, looking for a woman, find a girl. And... A woman in a fur coat walks into a police station. Until then...